picture the scene. You're part of a fairly new rock band, writing songs, playing gigs. Things are going well, but you're struggling to see how you're going to get out of your local scene. You need a break. One night, you have a gig in Galway. And rumours are flying around the town every night of the week that the Waterboys are coming into the gig. They're coming in to play. They're coming in to check us out. The Waterboys were at the time one of the biggest bands around and they were recording Fisherman's Blues down the road in Spiddle. Every night these rumours were flying. But tonight, halfway through your gig, you look up and who's in the audience but Mike Scott the lead singer of the Waterboys. Your heart skips a beat. Finally, he's here. All those rumours were true. What's more, after the gig, he comes up, says hello, has a chat. Lads, I love the band. Would you like to tour Ireland with us, with the Waterboys? A few weeks later, would you like to tour the UK with us? A few weeks after that, lads, I'm going to record and produce your first single in Windmill Lane. What do you reckon? Luke, Rory, I think it's fair to say that any of us would be fairly excited in a situation like that. Absolutely. Jesus. I'd say that's a fair, fair statement. Yeah. <laughs> Accurate. Have, you, have you ever heard those rumours like, you know, X is coming in tonight to see the gig or to see the show? And, you know, I remember being in Sligo Live maybe 10, 12 years ago and the Buena Vista Social Club were playing at Sligo Live. And I played a couple of session gigs after the the shows that year and each night it was the Buena Vista Social Club were coming in and finally <laughs> finally on the Monday night the last night of the festival two of them came in the percussion player and the keyboard player came down to a gig we were doing in the Strand and it was just such a thrill you know these guys were unbelievable musicians and they just got stuck into the session and I'll never forget the gig uh, actually to be honest and I know this might sound a little bit like stagey and I promise it's not stagey when I'm about to say it but my version of that is from, I don't come from a musical background. I don't do a lot of performing in pubs. I'm, I'm not known as a musician, probably because I'm not a musician. <laughs> so when my, when my dad called me to say, Kieran Quinn is going to call you to see if you want to do a theme ah, night in the car. No, but think about it though. Think about it though. Nobody knows that I do a bit of singing. And yet the biggest thing that's going to be happening in the Summerfest, you're going to be part of it. So I have a similar kind of a thing. That's what I mean. I didn't mean it to sound too stagey, but I do understand <laughs> sure that. Sure, I heard you singing Ed Sheeran, man. I knew, <laughs> I knew. You. That, that wasn't Ed Sheeran. That wasn't Ed Sheeran. And if you want to know why that wasn't Ed Sheeran, may you go back a few episodes and listen may to the May you go back. May you go back. Um, I, I think I know what you're saying though. Like it's all degrees really, isn't it? Like there are plenty of people that I would regard as friends and, and contemporaries and stuff, but that I would regard as, we'll say, a better musician than I, or, you know, they've been around the, the block a bit more than I have. And seeing those people in front of me at a gig always makes me want to up my game a little bit. And truth be told, it makes me a little bit uh, nervous, you know. I actually think I probably end up playing worse when those people end up in front of me at a gig <laughs> because I get in my own head and, yeah, yeah, and I'm so sure. conscious that they're there. Um so that that kind of feeling of of people in front of you at a gig, I, that that can that happens to me with not famous people, people <laughs> that I gig with. I love that, man. You know, <laughs> I think that that can happen to you on on many different levels. That's so but true, I, though. Yeah, like in a sense of if you if you admire anyone, and then they're coming and watching you go crap, right? Yeah, I gotta yeah, hit yeah. this perfectly. Like yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. 
Yeah, I know. Anytime I feel that, I always think of, I read, you know, one of my musical heroes is Oscar Peterson, Canadian jazz piano player. <clears throat> he's, he's unbelievable. And, uh, you know, I, I remember reading his biography and hearing about him even feeling like this, you know, Art yeah, Tatum yeah. came into one of his gigs one night and he froze on the piano, you know, so it's a real, <laughs> it's not, I'm sure it's not just musicians. I'm sure it's lots of people in other, other mm. jobs as well, but it's certainly, certainly a thing among musicians. But we're speaking of excitement, lads, and the excitement uh, we might feel if, if, if this happened to us. How do we feel about our guest today? Because we've had lots of rock stars on the podcast already, but they've all been people we've known to a certain degree. This man uh, had a, or had or has a huge career as 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 a as one of the two ever present members of one of Ireland's biggest bands, and I can't say any of us know him particularly well. So does it does it feel different having him on? Yeah, like uh, leading up to this particular recording of the podcast, you know, you do your own little bit of research and maybe listening back to tracks and things you mightn't have heard for a while. And when I started listening back to some of their bigger tunes and some of their bigger songs and stuff, you kind of realize that I don't know what it's like, maybe like over the East Coast or whatever, but certainly in the West and Northwest, these guys provide like a kind of nearly invisible theme tune to occasions in people. You can't go to a wedding without hearing them. You can't go to an after a match celebration without hearing them. Mayo can't play Dublin in the All-Ireland final without it being absolutely everywhere. Yeah. And if you leave a wedding without hearing them, the wedding's not over. Somebody's playing it on a guitar on the way out the door. Yeah. So when you realise the level that these guys have integrated themselves into certainly, you know, my life without me even knowing, then all of a sudden it's like, oh God, class. <laughs> I get to talk to someone deadly like, yeah, I thought that was great. Yeah. Yeah, their um, their songs really have kind of uh, you know permeated uh, down and and you know right down to the cultural bedrock of of the West and and as you say like there there's so many of their songs are kind of they're, they're a soundtrack to people's lives now whether it's after a match or whether it's at a wedding or or you know so many things they're they're really culturally ingrained there and there's plenty of um big irish acts we've had you know amazing musical output i don't know if you could really say that about so many of them though that the songs really get kind of ingrained in that like even if you were to take u2 which are arguably the biggest musical export we've ever had you don't sing a u2 song after a match and you're not guaranteed Mm. to hear one at a wedding you know, yeah, but the, yeah, but these lads, you certainly are, and I think the other aspect of that being that you two are a big export, whereas we kept these lads. I don't know how how famous they are worldwide. I I don't know the figures, but to me, they're very much ours. You know what I mean? Whether we like it or not, whether you like them or not, they're very much ours. They're very much Irish, and they pride themselves on that. So it, this this interview was a cool one and a big one for us. Great. Well, let's get stuck into it. In case you haven't figured out who today's guest is, it was, of course, referenced in our theme music earlier on, created by Luke this week, uh, in which he gave a nod to one of the biggest hits this band ever had, the N17. The band in question is, of course, the Saw Doctors, and today's guest is Mr. Leo Moran. Leo Moran, you are very welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. It's great to have you, I must say. And Leo, in keeping with tradition here on In the Lamplight, 
uh, we have a poem for you to welcome you to our podcast. Lovely. And so I'm going to recite this poem and there's a challenge in it for you, actually, Leo. How many Saw Doctor songs do I mention in the poem? Whoa. We'll give it a shot. I'm going to get out my pen. Take notes. Get out the pen. <laughs> get out the pen. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Growing up in the west of Ireland, chasing girls and playing ball. To win just once would be enough, but these lads won it all. With uplifting songs and stories, they rid us of the gloom that marked the 80s and early 90s in towns like Sligo and Toom. When our spirits they needed rising to be happy, proud and strong, it was time for these doctors of the saw to sing their powerful songs. They sang of roads, of rival counties, of first loves and football peeves, of the 60s and collecting for concern on Christmas Eve. And today on In The Lamplight, we speak to this owl Sham, because never mind the strangers, he's the leader of the band. And be it Tommy Kay or Rapping Hay, the hits he kept us scoring. So from down the road, now the M17, please welcome... Leo Moran. Very good. <laughs> hey. Fabulous job, Kieran. Man. Nice Cheapers, Kieran. That's very impressive, Kieran. Thanks very much for putting the work into the last. No worries, Leo. What have you got there now? Uh, well, let's see. Uh, how many did I get? Ten, I think. Do you want to name them out there? To win just once. Yes. Sing a powerful song. Lovely. You said roads and counties. That They, were, they weren't specific. No, they weren't specific, no. I probably counted them as N17 and Green, Red and Mayo. Yeah, fair really. enough. We'll give you those. That's absolutely what was in my head. So we'll give you those. Then there was Red Cortina. Yes, first loves, yeah. My heart is in the 60s still. Lovely. I used to love her. Yeah. Never mind the strangers. Yeah. Tommy K. Hayrap in N17 or M17. M17. There you go. Yo, nice. Great job. Pass the test, Leo. We'll do the intro you now. <laughs> Sligo was always good for the poetry. Yes, very good. Leo, I want to bring you not back to the very start, but close to the start. I read that your big break as a band, as the Saw Doctors, was Mike Scott hearing a gig of yours in the back bar in the Keys pub in Galway. I know there's probably lots of little things that happened, but was that a significant moment for you? Absolutely. The Waterboys were very exciting at the time. They were a whole new thing. And uh, I had seen them playing in Seapoint and it was, it's still one of the best gigs I was ever at. I think that was in 1986. Right. And they were just on fire that time. They'd got the fiddle sound and the sax and they were playing loads of country music. And they were legendary in Ireland at the time for showing up at sessions. And if you were ever at a session somewhere, people say, oh, the water boys are coming tonight. Like, okay, you know? right. And, of course, nine, nine times out of ten they didn't, but but they did sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that was a big thing then. They were recording out in Spittles, so they were local to Galway and they were coming in and out of town and people were always wondering would they, would they turn up. And uh, Mike Scott came in and saw us. We did six weeks of a residency in the Keys. The Keys Bar wasn't as it is now. It was just an old shed out the back, really, uh, an extension. Okay. And that was really our... Uh, starting point as regards getting an audience in Galway. Boric was in the band at the time and Boric Stevens. Yes. And myself, we were working in Mockness. So we had a kind of a rental crowd on a Tuesday night. They used to come in to see us. We had all our work colleagues. And yeah. if you looked in the door, then you think, oh, the, these boys must be good. There's a crowd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mm. uh, that's what happened. Mike Scott came in and he saw what he saw and he must have liked it. And he offered us the Irish tour uh, around 
uh, Christmas 88 it was. Okay. And the Waterboys were doing something different at the time as well. Most of the bands of their level would do Belfast, Dublin, Cork and Galway maybe. But the Waterboys put in these tours where it was like uh, Carrick McCross and Croom. There was a lot of C's, Clonakilty. Right. And Sligo was on that tour. Okay. I don't know if people remember that gig. It was out in the sports centre. And that's the night we were playing. And after we finished, Mike Scott asked us in Sligo, would we do the British tour, which right. was a whole other undertaking. But yeah, that was a that was a momentous night for us. So we had to go home and think about that for a little while. And we, we of course, said we had to do it because yeah. we said our reason for doing it, we justified it by saying there's no point in telling people in the pub in 20 years' time what we could have done or what we'd been asked to do. Uh, we said we'd just better do it. And Davey had to leave his job. Right. So it was a brave move for him at the time. When you're asked to do support like that for a big band, like the Waterboys were at that point and, and still are, of course, it's a great gig for you guys in terms of gaining an audience and in terms of being able to play to great audiences. But it's not necessarily a brilliantly paying gig. Would that be accurate? Well, we were lucky we got paid. Right. You get £100 a night. Now, to go to England, we had to get a loan of, I think it was £3,500 at the time. But we were we were able to live fairly cheaply. So we came home with half it. But no, you wouldn't make money. But on the other side of that, most bands of the Waterboys level were, would charge you to be on the tour as a support act. And all that links in with record companies so that a record company would have a new band. So they would go to the bigger band and they would pay them a lot of money to have their band on the tour. So Mike Scott was very generous. And another thing he always did was he fed us. We were on the catering numbers as well. So that when we arrived at the gig, we got a bowl of soup and a dinner. And that's another thing that wouldn't have normally happened with a bigger band and a support okay. band. So... Well, no, it wouldn't be lucrative and it would end up costing you something. It was still a very generous uh, way to be operating uh, for him looking after us. Great. OK. And, and and what do you think it was about? OK, obviously, you're you're playing to these bigger audiences every night, but that requires you guys to meet that expectation. And to and did you find yourselves upping your game as a result? How was your mindset going into those gigs? It was amazing because we were playing in the Keys. We played in a few pubs in Galway. Now, we maybe did do a support act in Seapoint or whatever, but our first gig of the Waterboys tour was Cork City Hall. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's huge and the stage is raked down. And we were there. That was that was a whole new level for us. And Pierce had just joined the band playing the bass. And we he'd only just learned the songs. And he didn't have a lot of stage or microphone technique at the time. So after one song, Pierce was standing beside me at the microphone and he said, Jesus Christ, I am shitting myself. <laughs> and it, <it's, laughs> it came out over the tape, so it must have came out over the hall as well. And uh, that was exactly how we were feeling because it was like, it was just a, a different level of gig. So it took us a while to be able to figure out how to do that and get comfortable with it. But we had enough of them. The tour is an amazing thing because a band starts off the first night and you're playing the songs fairly well and maybe not so well. And at the end of a tour, you listen to the tape or you feel it and it's all tightened up and everything has got faster and you just become so much more of a band by doing a tour rather than doing once off gigs every now and again. So that really made us. 
when you say um, that bass player had just joined the band and, and had learned the set and stuff at that time, what was your set at that time? Because obviously this is, you know, this predates quite a large part of Saw Doctor's discography before a lot of your, you know, your bigger hits and stuff. So what kind of, what kind of stuff were you playing? Yeah, well, we had in 17, we had I Used to Love Her. We had Presentation Border. We had a few Porrick songs. We had Streets of Galway and Drive Away. And we had Terps' songs, Freedom Fighters. Some of the songs off the first album were there. Some of them weren't. So that's a good question, actually. It was Porrick songs were big hits for us. And the N17, I Used to Love Her, always worked. And as I said, Presentation Border. Yeah, I'm trying to think what other ones. We had a song called Ways of the World. We had a few that disappeared as well over time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> But people liked what we were doing. We weren't playing very well around them, but whatever kind of a racket we were making was some way appealing or something. I don't know. It was fun. I'd, I'd imagine so, because you guys came came out of tune. Like you came out of the sort of tune music scene. And by the sounds of things, that was and and is a very sort of fertile scene. And and, and there's lots going on there. Um, but all of a sudden, from sort of coming together out of the tune scene, you're touring Ireland, you're touring the UK. It must have been fun. Oh, yeah. And it, it happened very quickly. And But it was a brilliant learning curve. Like I was saying, it was very satisfying doing so many gigs and learning to be a band. And you could sense how it was improving all the time. And we were learning all the time and getting more comfortable. And originally, if something went wrong on stage, we'd be worried about it or, you know, whatever. And very shortly, we just decided we didn't care. He just if it if it's a mistake, it's a bit of crack. And sometimes they were the best crack, you know, when things go wrong. So nothing faced us. We got very comfortable from doing all the gigs. Okay, so you get back from the UK, you know, you found your feet as a band and you're you're playing well. What was the next sort of big break? Because obviously there's the N seventeen and I used to love her where your were your first two big hits. But did anything happen to to make those into hits or what what happened next basically Leo is what I'm asking you. Well, on the English tour, Mike Scott promised us that he would produce N17 as our first single. And we had a two-single deal with Solid Records. So Mike organised that we would go to Windmill Lane 2 in Dublin. And we went there for a weekend and worked very hard and recorded the N17. And that got put out at the end of 1989. And it didn't really do much. It got very little notice. And then we had to do another single. We had a two single deal and things weren't going anywhere, really. And Phil Tennant, who Mike had brought in to record the Waterboys last gig of the tour in the Glasgow Barrowlands, he also asked him to record the Saw Doctors on the night. That was our little tour, end of tour gift. Oh, lovely. So we had this properly recorded gig, which was brilliant. But uh, Phil Tennant then offered to produce our second single because we got to know Phil. He engineered N17 and he worked with Mike. So he said, oh, well, I'll do the other one. Will you come over to Wales? There's this residential studio we uh, that I work in. It's very good. You can concentrate on what you're doing. So we got together and we recorded It Won't Be Tonight, sing a powerful song, and it, I used to love her. And we didn't know which one to put out as a single. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so we had to we had to choose coming up to the summer of nineteen ninety. And eventually we we went to the I used to love her. And it, that didn't go anywhere either. 
what do you think it was about it, or was was it the fact that you played it so much live and you it, you knew it worked, or yeah, what, that was a that was a fateful decision. In fairness, it was, and it, it wouldn't be the favorite of the three, but for everybody, sure. But it was obviously the most single kind of type song of the three. That was out, and Solid Records were basically uh, an arm of MCD, who were running Fela that summer. And I Used to Love was out and the people in Solid Records were all working really hard at Fela because it was a huge undertaking. It was the first year, hadn't been done before, so it was all hands on deck. Mm. So they probably hadn't any time to concentrate on the record company side of things for a couple of weeks. And when we met them at Fela, they said, we're going to have to do some kind of publicity because I Used to Love has kind of disappeared. It's not doing anything. And we didn't expect it to do anthem because... N17 hadn't done anything either, so it was no big surprise. But then when we went home on the Monday, we heard that it had gone into the charts, unbeknownst to everybody. It went into the charts at number 27. And we thought, when people told us that on the Monday, we thought they were slagging us, like, oh, you're in the charts now, lads. Yeah. You know, as if, yeah. you know, who we were. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you know how it got in? I honestly think it was quite natural. I think... A couple of DJs played it and I think people rang in and said, will you play that again? I honestly okay. believe it was almost that simple. It, it definitely wasn't record company work because they thought it had disappeared themselves. Yeah. And um, they hadn't been able to work on it because the failure was so so uh, uh, demanding. And yeah, there, I, there was no plug-in or anything. It was just people liked to hear it. And it grew from there and ended up being the, the best-selling Irish single of all time, which is some accolade. Well, it's definitely up there anyway. I don't know who who counts those singles. But yeah, it's, yeah. it's definitely one of them for sure. Obviously, look, the story goes on and and we'll get to other parts of the story later in the interview, hopefully. What, what I'd like to ask you about now, just when we're talking about I Used to Love Her, I've always marveled at the chorus of that song and how it changed, as a, from a musician's point of view even, how it changes key from, from a G to an F halfway through the chorus and then gets back to the G for the verse. I may be mistaken, but I haven't really seen, I haven't seen anything like that in many of your other songs. I could obviously be missing something, but I'm just wondering where did that come from? It's, it's such an unusual thing to do and for it to work so spectacularly. How was that written and what was generally your writing process? Davy Carton was in a band called Blaze X, who were a brilliant, brilliant punky band in 1980, 81. And the chorus of I Still Love Her was a Blaze X song. Ah, okay. And Davy would have written that. It's very odd. And it's funny when you see some bands, you know, you see bands sometimes at weddings and stuff and they're trying to play it and they, they find it difficult to figure out because <laughs> it is quite odd. It is, yeah. But it, as it, it's very, when you hear it, it's very natural. And uh, Davy would have come up with that and Paul Kniff would have come up with probably most of the rest of the song. But um, Davy's a great composer. He's a great brain for music and he hasn't a clue about the theory of it. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he'll go, mm, mm, and it, no, no, mm, mm, and he'll go, that's, that's it, that's it there. <laughs> you know, and, he won't, and it's just a pure natural talent. He gets these things in his head and he has to go and find out what they are like. And that would have been what he did there. He was going, it's gone. He was gone, oh, is, you know, and somebody like me who would not be as talented, but have some like, a little bit more understanding of the theory of it. would never go there. No. It, it it has to be something in the head that just happen in somebody's very creative head that manages to 
get there. Like, and Davy is like that. He probably has nothing in his head telling him that he shouldn't go there. Exactly. Yeah. And he just hears this note and a harmony off it and he has to find the two of them and it ends up being that chord instead of something one of the rest of us would have played. <laughs> it's the same in N17, that chorus when it goes to when it goes to the E minor. I wish I was on that N17. I was talking to a really accomplished piano player, John Dunn, and he was saying, he was saying, that's very odd. He said he's, he goes to an E minor and he sings F sharp and it's, that's what makes it, that's what makes it odd, like, you know, and then that's yeah. it. Because I remember the chorus was coming up and, and I was going to go G, C, D and Davey was going, no, 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 this is, and I'm going, I can't, I don't know what you're saying. He's going, no, wait, wait. And, it's like, and eventually, Trial and error. He found what he was hearing, and that's what that's what it was. But it's odd. Was that how a lot of the songs happened? The two e sitting in a room and him, him trying to figure stuff out, and you trying to tell him what he's doing, and you sort of taking notes of what he's doing, and you adding a few words. Is is it literally <laughs> like that? Two of you in a room jamming it out, or is it? Is I, I know I know there was a lot of other songwriters involved as well at, from time to time, but you know, uh, is is that an accurate representation of of a lot of what happened? Yeah, it was. I used to write a lot of lyrics, and so I'd like hand him ten poems, and yeah. he'd come back to me in three days' time with four or five songs, maybe, and then we'd sit down and work out the music for them, and he'd be always at that. No, 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 it's, it's you know, and I'd be going, but <laughs> but the obvious thing to do is no, 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 and he'd be he used to, he'd be whistling the riffs then, and he whistles like this, <laughs> and I'd be going, I I don't know what notes they are, like you know, and he'd be going. Yeah. And I go, oh God, I'm trying to find it. And then eventually find it like it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh no, if there was a fly on the wall for those sessions. I'd be just trying to drag music out of him because he's, he's, uh, he's so creative. People haven't really heard uh, a tiny percentage of what Davy's composing ability is. But there's nice little tricks in the songs, like little things along the way. That Yeah, they're like that, the songs, Leo. They're... You, you might think on first listen, ah, I'll, I'll play that song handy enough, and then you, then you, when you get into them, there's always a little twist or a little quirk, and it's, it's always, you know, it's very interesting from, from even a musician's point of view to go in and explore them, you know. So very good. Uh, so Leo, just one last question before I, I we're going to ask you to, to play something. Hopefully, I've been a huge fan for years uh, of the band, and my younger brother got into you first around those times, around the sort of early nineties, I think. Uh, it took me a little while longer, but, you know, I'd, I'd know an awful lot of your songs and enjoy a lot of them. But if I'm honest, there's like there's a while where, you know, among a certain people, it's like, oh, the Saw Doctors, you're into them. <laughs> and and I'm here. Well, I am actually. I think they're a great band and they, they write great songs and they connect with people, etc., etc. You must have come across a little bit of that over the years, as in people who just didn't like you. That's the same for everyone, though, isn't it? And that's what I'm saying. But yeah, was that ever a problem, or was that was that ever an issue? It wasn't really. Once you had people in front of you to play to, and they liked what you were doing, that's all you ever need, really. Great. And not, you can't be liked by everybody. I mean, I know people don't don't like Bob Dylan, or you know, no matter how great you are, somebody's not going to like you. So it's not a big deal, really. Well, that's a very wise attitude. It's not always a very easy attitude to have when you're, you know, you're so involved in a band and you're hearing people criticize you or, but you seem to have that wisdom in you, Leo. W was it always like that for you? Well, I probably wasn't. No, when you're younger, you'd be thinking, oh, what are they saying about us? You know, yeah. they didn't listen to us. And very often, of, of course, the, the people that might criticize you probably never came to see a gig or, 
didn't really get the, the full experience of what was going on or they probably heard one song on the radio and didn't like the sound of it or didn't like the voice or the accent or whatever. And, but that's, we I mean, we're the same with ba- other bands ourselves. We don't always listen as closely as as maybe we should or, or we don't have the time to or whatever. So that's, that's just natural. It's uh, it's lovely though that when you mention accent there, it's lovely that you sing in your accents and you write in your accents as well. You know, you're very true to yourselves that way. A lot of people try to Americanize themselves and stuff, and you don't do that. And I love that. Yeah, I think it takes people a while to get their voice and figure out how how they actually sound or the, what their own expression should be. But yeah, we were lucky and it worked. But all the people we loved were always singing in their own accents anyway, so just they were they weren't West of Ireland accents. Who were those people, Leo? Who 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 were your influences? Now that you bring them up, well, all the punky stuff was was huge when I was growing up, like the Jam and the Clash and the Stranglers, and then the Ramones, and then I went into the more kind, I suppose, American style, Tom Waits and Springsteen and Creedence Clearwater Revival and all that kind of crap. We always loved Buddy Holly. All that kind of stuff. So we just borrowed little bits from them all. Yeah, 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 yeah. Always on the show here, we love to ask our guests um, to perform something for us. Uh, And I heard you recently describe the song you're going to perform as your favourite Saw Doctor song. And it happens to be my favourite Saw Doctor song too. My very first gig, Leo, that I played uh, in a pub in Strand Hill. This was the only song I sang. Uh, I was with it. I was with it. It was myself on the piano, and there was another so- another fella playing guitar and singing, and he was sort of leading the gig. But uh, I I used to do this song every night as part of the set, um, and it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful song. Um, can you tell us about it and why it's your favourite song or why you like it so much? Well, first of all, you were very brave because it's not a showstopper. Like it's. Uh... <laughs> I found that out very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you need you need the wind at your back to get away with it. Like. Yeah, yeah. But um, I like it because I suppose uh, what we were talking about a minute ago, a lot of people didn't like us because they just thought we were one dimensional and it was all shouting and crack and nothing very serious. And for me, same old town is is a kind of a balance to to the fact that there's all the fun crack going on as well. But but same old town is very real, and I just like how real it is and how simple it is. It just—I I met, I was having a few pints with my an old school friend, and I just thought, you know, we're—I was lucky enough to be going off on tour every few weeks and coming back or whatever. And he was there, living the same place as he always was. So I—I I just tried to see it from his perspective. And but the funny thing about it is, even if people live in New York or Berlin or whatever. They, this kind of this kind of thing goes through their heads no matter where they live you know that they're they're lit, you get a bit fed up with wherever you are for too long i think i listened to it today leo and it's 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 particularly appropriate at the moment you know a lot a lot of the words you know it's it's a lot of people are are stuck where they are and and it's the same thing day after day you know and uh, it's yeah, it's actually jeepers, quite I didn't a think of that. Yeah, no, I, I just looked at it with that lens today and uh, you you were very, you had great foresight. <laughs> it's pure love. <laughs> <laughs> Coincidence. Coincidence. Well, in your own time, Leo, same old town, it'd be great. Same old faces, same old streets, 
Same old people is all you meet Too long wait Standing round I'm sick and tired of the same old town Same old drizzle Same old rain Same old walking back home again Same old heartache Lost and found Same old story Same old town I go out for a walk See if there's news Rain on the path leak into my shoes I do talk to myself I'm my only best friend Sunday night nearly Monday morning again Same old story, same old town Same old Monday, closed all day and their wisps of hay the same old hanging around the square the same old spoofers the same old stairs you're welcome back yeah bang the door this Christmas time and the time before I don't like asking fairly wide you never give us the price of a pint I go out for a walk to see if there's news Rain on the path leaking into my shoes I do talk to myself I'm my only best friend Sunday night nearly Monday morning again Same old story, same old town You'd often wonder As the years go past How'd you ever bother going to Mass? Fear of God or to find a wife Buying shares in the afterlife The bell still tolls, I heard it there The final journey up through the square Shop doors close, blinds come down The same old story, the same old town I do howl at the I go barking at dogs, take off all my clothes and lie out in the bar. I do talk to myself, I'm my only best friend. Sunday night, nearly morning again. Same old story, same old time. Same old faces, same old streets. Same old people is all you need. All right. Lovely layup. Beautiful. Excellent. Beautiful. Fair play to you. And all the crowd in the bar in Strand Hill are gone now. <laughs> <laughs> Correct. It was, a, it was a learning curve for me at that stage. It was one of those I just wanted to do. But after two or three weeks of the residency, I didn't do it too much, too much more after that. <laughs> yeah, well, you could do it at the start when there's nobody in maybe or something. Yeah, yeah. You find your moments. Yeah. <laughs> ah, that's great, Leo. That's lovely. Lovely to have you perform on, on the show. Um, come here. I'm going to bring you back. The, f- the first time I think I ever saw you, I hadn't seen a gig of the Saw Doctors at this point. Uh, this was January 2002. And we were on a bus down to Tume Stadium to play Galway in the early rounds of the FBD League. And uh, we got off the bus and... My friend who was on the, the panel with me, 
a fella called Dara McGarty. He says, that's Leo Moran busking outside the stadium there playing tunes. I said, is it? He says, yeah, yeah. Come on, we'll have a look. So McGarty went, like we're meant to be preparing for a match here, getting focused. And McGarty spotted you out the window and he's, he's, off to, he's off to find you and to say hello. But that just, that just struck me as a mad thing to do, Leo. You're, you're part of one of the biggest bands in Ireland and you're here busking outside Tume Stadium. I love it. Do you remember it? Oh, I remember it. Well, I remember meeting Dara that day. That's the first day we met him. It was just a bit of crack. That's, that's my house. That's where I am here. Really? Wow. So we had the, yeah, we were plugged in through the sitting room window and it was just a bit of crack. Park and myself did a, an album when Galway won the All-Ireland. We did, a, we'd be, we called ourselves the Folk Footballers and we did an album of 15 songs about football. Park had a load of them written already, like so. Wow. So uh, that's what happened. And, and we were just kind of, uh, that was an extension of that. Then we did a little gig on match day. So was that every match day you do that? No, we did it a couple of times, all right. Just for the big matches against Sligo? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that was off the crack. <laughs> they just did it for the games that they were sure they were going to win. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, so, I'm so sorry, Karen. That's <laughs> OK, Luke, it's OK. That was a long time ago. Leo, you're a, you're a very proud tune man, though. You can see it from, I guess, a lot of your songs. I've heard you talk about tune and even the fact that you're, you seem so proud of the music scene there. Can you describe a little bit about the town and, and what it is about it that keeps you there and, the, and that, that, that makes you love it so much? Yeah, there was always... a. Uh, uh, culture of creativity long before us there was there was always a good theatre guild and then there was all the show bands so there was a lot of um, professional musicians it was like a little cottage industry in Tume in the 60s and into the 70s and then when I was growing up everybody was making up songs it was just that's what people were doing it's like it's great to be part of this like and yeah. of course a bit competitive then as well yeah and uh, there was loads of people loads of people just making up songs and trying to get them out there and it it made it very normal normalized to want to make up a song and sing it in front of people and and um they did a compilation cd there and it must be 15 years ago now they call it songs from the broken wheel and there's three it's a three cd collection of i think there was let's say 55 different acts one song from 55 different tomb acts or bands or whatever and that was over, um, that was over, say, I suppose, up to that point, 25, 30 year period. But there would be as many again since if, if there was another compilation done. So, yes, it, it's nice to be part of a culture when it's, when it's normal. And you would have grown up in different bands. No more, you mentioned Davey earlier was, was part of a blank band called Blaze X. And you were, was it? Something about the white men I heard you say the other day. Not, not Too much for the white men. You obviously grew up writing songs. You grew up writing songs and playing in bands. That was, the, that was just what was done. Yeah, I was in a band. Our first band was, I was with the McHugh brothers, Mousy and Cuser, and we were called The Mix. And we wrote songs. They went on to be a band called All Cats Are Grey, who were very good. And then I was in Too Much for the White Men. Mousy was the singer in that. He was a great frontman. So yeah, so there was always this kind of stuff going on. It was like, who's playing next week? Or And there's loads of people you never heard of and they're really good too. And is it still like that? Yeah, it actually is. There's a, a thing called Fuse where young people get together. Well, it was going on there up to last year. One Friday a month and there could be five or six different acts in there on a Friday. All young and all original. Amazing. Wow. Brilliant. I mean, so what was it like then for the town? 
when ye were at your height? Was there great pride about ye or did did ye play there often? Was there a place in Toome you could play that would fit ye? Uh, no, after Irish Lover was went uh, big, there was nowhere really handy for us to play. We went to Fela in 1991, it would have been the second year, and Ollie Jennings, our manager, was saying, God, wouldn't it be great to do something like this in Toome? And it was at a time when things were easier to put together. And Ollie worked on it and he put a West Awake gig together in Toome, what we call the West Awake. And we had a we had a big uh, tent down in Toome Stadium and we had 9,000 people at it. So that was a huge wow. celebration. of, And it was our first proper gig after we'd become kind of famous. Like. Okay, right. So, uh, and it was it was fantastic. Mike Scott came and played. And the Hottest Flowers came. Donald Lunny came. Uh, local, another couple of local bands played. Parik played. Yeah, it was. Uh, and it was, the, you wouldn't believe it. It was the 7th of September and kids were just going back to school. But it happened to be the hottest day of the year. So people went bananas. It was this un- unbelievable weekend of an Indian summer. And, uh, you know, the, the big top was down the stadium. And there was more people up the town than there was down the stadium. I'd say we inspired people in Chumalot. They probably thought... Well, if them boys can do it, anyone can. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, uh, yeah, I mean, that, yeah. So, so that's all, that's that's one that live in the memory. I'd say when you came back, you know, and and just had this huge crowd. That must have been, I suppose, an amazing feeling for you. Yeah, and it was just so lucky. Everything fell into place perfectly, and the weather just capped it all off. It made it so easy for people. And everybody always talks about how what an amazing weekend it was. But it was just a. A lot of lucky coincidences. I've heard you say a few times now about these lucky coincidences. There might be a bit more to it than that now, I have a feeling. <laughs> You're very modest. And some perseverance. And some perseverance, indeed, indeed. Is it true, Leo, that when ye guys had the experience of what the Waterboys had when ye were starting out and when ye guys were the headline band touring, is it true that ye would often take tune musicians with ye as support acts? Because there was just so much talent in Toome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And like, it wasn't just that they were from Toome. It was that they were good enough to fill the spot. Because when when you're, when you want a support band, you want a support band to be good. You want people to be in good humor when, yeah. when the main band comes on. So, yeah, we had loads of different acts from Toome over the years. And we always did the same thing. We never charged them to be on the tour and we always fed them. So we were able to give back the, uh, the original gifts that Mike Scott gave to us. So, which lovely. was, which was lovely, like. That's nice. Yeah, yeah, great. Leo, I've um, I've told you one Sligo football saw doctor story. I've, I've, I've a couple more for you. Well, I have one for you as well. Oh, do you now? <laughs> yeah. Well, do you want to go first? I might as well, yeah. We were having a drink with Dara in Toon one night and uh, a friend of mine is Gabby Fallon. He's actually Jar Fallon's brother. Oh, yeah. And I I introduced Dara to him. I said, this is uh, Dara plays football for Sligo. And Gabby said, yeah. He said, oh, yeah, Sligo. Jeez, Sligo were great last year, he said. You know, they could have won that game if your man had punched that ball over the bar. <laughs> you know, they'd have won that game, you know. And, oh, jeez, he said. And uh, Dara said, uh, yeah, he said, Gabby, he said, that was me. <laughs> and Gabby said, ah, yeah, he said, but you know, like, uh, you know, and the pressure is on and you're out in the pitch, it's awful hard, like, you know. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> so he, he went... He went backtracking as best he could, like. Oh, brilliant! That was two thousand and two. We, we, we. I think we'd our man a quarter final, and McGarty intercepted a ball at the last minute of the game. We were a point down, and he had the choice, you know, to go for glory and bury it, or to fist it. The safe option: fist it over the bar and get the replay. Uh, we, we were. 
Dara got married a few years ago and uh, the best man had had got Armagh's Benny Tierney in on the act. So Benny Tierney was the Armagh goalkeeper who was facing Dara that day. And so Benny Tierney, he just played it brilliantly. He recorded a video and they showed Dara, they showed the chance, replayed the chance over and over again. Poor Dara, you know, <laughs> having to watch this. And then Benny Tierney comes on and it's Dara. I'm just here today to say thank you. You know, we'd never won in all Ireland. We've never won in all Ireland since. This was our chance. And, you know, it's changed our lives, Dara, to be honest. We are heroes at home. We are bought pints wherever we go. And every year we meet up, Dara, and we meet up to celebrate our all Ireland. And at that celebration, we toast you, Dara. And we thank Dara McGarty <laughs> for fisting the ball over the bar that day. <laughs> and he just played it brilliantly. <laughs> wow. Oh, that's Dara, in fairness to him, he had some year that it's year. It's no bother to Dara. No, no bother to him. It's no bother to him, is right. Anyone that's ever played sport knows that you can, you can never blame anyone for anything. It's just you, whatever happens on the moment, it's you only do your best. like For sure. Dara brought me to a gig. We were over in New York, Leo for a match and the match was finished anyway and we had a Sunday night out in New York and you guys were playing I, I wouldn't be able to tell you where you were playing I'd say this was maybe 2004 or so and we went in about four or five of us and uh, we had an amazing night but what I remember was Tommy Kay okay one of your one of your famous songs and you had a fella who came out who was standing on the stage nearly the whole night you know when you're watching a play it's like you know, there's a there's a pair of shoes in the corner and they're not touched for the whole play and you're waiting to see what the pair of shoes is there for. It's like, and this fellow was at the side of the stage and he was he just was there and he was grooving away for some songs. But then Tommy Kay came on and and his reason for being there became clear to everyone that that he was the man to lead the crowd in the in the T and the K and the and the DJ. And I just thought that is, a, that is a stroke of genius by the lads. <laughs> I'd say that was just another coincidence, to tell you the truth. Because I don't remember that he would have been behind me. I probably didn't even see him. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Brilliant. Another lucky break, Leo, huh? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Come here, though. Just, just while we're on that topic. like, So I don't know. I'm going to guess there was probably two, 3,000 people in that venue there that night. Like it was, a big, it was a big gig, it felt like, anyway. And I heard you say recently that you've, you did a tour of house concerts, you know, a lot more recently. Was that with, with Anthony Thistleweight? Yeah. Yeah. And so, okay, they're two very different gigs. There's you with a big band, a big stage, a big setup, uh, a big crowd playing, you know, probably a fairly tightly defined set list. Or else there's you plus one other in a smaller venue, smaller crowd, probably a little bit more flexible type of a set list. How do those gigs compare for you? Well, the big one is much easier because you're not the sole focus of what's going on. Davey is the most most focus of it. And I'm over at the side playing the guitar and twiddling around a lot of the time and, and uh, just being conscious of keeping the audience with you. But But you have all this, you have the big songs, you have the big sound, you have the big lights, you have people there mad to hear them and it's it's a real roller coaster it's uh, and sometimes it's freewheeling a lot of a lot of the songs that are most popular is like a freewheel for a few minutes so that's the kind of a scene there whereas when you are doing a little house concert not alone are you the, the main focus for the whole gig start to finish every minute of it you're actually the main focus when you arrive there because if you arrive in someone's house or a li little small venue like you're just you're busy the whole time whereas 
if you're there with a band, you're you're just one of ten people that arrived in the building, and there's a dress room, and there's a bit of space or whatever. Whereas the other thing is very very intense, like, but it's lovely. They're they're both lovely. I hadn't realised what savagery happens to a building when a band arrives in there until I saw when only two people arrive. Ah, <laughs> yes. Because <if>, <laughs> 10 or 12 people get off a bus, everybody wants something. Somebody, that time, somebody wanted a phone, somebody wanted food, somebody wanted a drink, somebody wanted a toilet, somebody wanted to know where to put stuff. You know, and it's an invasion of a building, whereas when you're just doing the two people, it's really easy. And it's really easy for people to look after you then because it's it's, uh, it's not like a, the hordes arriving and demanding things. Is is one more rewarding than the other or are they just is it is it hard to compare them in terms of that? Yeah, it's hard to compare. They're just different. Yeah. Different. You meet on on the the smaller the gig, the more people you meet. You know, if we were doing the gig with the saw doctors now, we'd have our own sound men, we'd have our own monitor men, we'd have full crew. So in a lot of ways you don't meet the locals as much because the people you're dealing with are your own crowd. Whereas Doing the small gigs, you meet the sound person, you meet the manager of the hall, you meet the monitor person if there is one, you meet you meet everybody like. So it's actually it's actually more sociable, smaller ones. And then you meet all the audience. <laughs> yeah. You actually meet them all unless they really want to avoid you. you meet them. <laughs> and they wouldn't want to do that, surely, Leo. An odd one. <laughs> An odd one. <laughs> Okay, so look, it's our turn to play a song for you, Leo. Brilliant. Uh, I'm going to lead into this song with another football story. Uh, So that's a lot of the same people who pulled up on the bus in January 2002 to Toome Stadium to hear you busking outside the the, the stadium. We're also on on a bus in July 2007 uh, after we'd beaten Galway in in a Connacht final. And we were on the bus on the way home from Roscommon where the match was and to win just once was played and I'll never forget the bus just hopping to this song and the the, the noise inside the bus the, the the energy and the the joy and and it, the irony was not lost on me that it was Galway men who wrote this song and we're <laughs> we're on the way home uh you know anyway it was it was a lovely lovely moment and I guess look that it's it's memories like that that make songs for people and I'm sure we're not the only team in Ireland or in the world, indeed, to have adopted that song as, as our anthem. Do you remember writing that song? I do. I remember, um, <clears throat> again, I just wrote the poem about people that were kind of satisfied with, with their life, like, and they were just weren't, I just felt, you know, what about a bit of motivation here? Try and, try and go to the next level, like, rather than just uh, be blaming things and, and, not, and not doing stuff. So... I don't know where it came out of then after that. It's, I don't know if you write lyrics, they just, they kind of happen. <laughs> and it did. And I gave it to Davey and he put the tune to it. And the best cover version ever was up in Sligo. <laughs> well, I think if that's the same one we're referring to, that's the one we're going to play for you, Leo. Um, a, fr- a friend of ours, Sarah Crummy, um, put this, this version together a few years ago. And uh, I always love listening to it anyway. So I thought we might, we might ask Luke to, Luke has a version of it there. We might ask Luke to put it on for us. Brilliant. To win just once would be enough To those who've lost their life in love For those who've lost their guile and nerve Their innocence 
video. That is fabulous. Beautiful version of that song, surely. That's fabulous, isn't it? It's brilliant. Yeah, what a yeah. version. She makes her own, but she, the essence of it is still there, but it's completely her own. It's fabulous. Yeah. yeah. God, when I'd heard it when she did it originally, I thought it was brilliant, but I actually think it's more brilliant there when I heard it again. <laughs> <laughs> Luke's got a bit of magic there, have you, Luke? I, I, yeah, oh. but I mean, it's all technical stuff that like, the essence of what she did is 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 there regardless of whether I've I've cleaned it up or or not. I remember sitting in the crowd. I was in the crowd that night um, when she did that, and just that's just goosebumps. As you say, Leo, she just really made it. Uh, she really made it her own. It's a it's a lovely yeah, she re- got stuck reimagining. Into it. She got <laughs> stuck into it, right? <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah, I'd say the only other time that was sung better was on the Sligo bus back from on the way back <laughs> from the match. <laughs> the only time Leo is right is right. Um, I suppose this has probably happened to you lots over the years, where you hear versions of your songs that surprise you. What what what's that Not like, really. Leo? Really, yeah. Um, you don't often hear uh, ones that surprise you. Yeah, people do the obvious ones and. People do versions of songs that we're not covered that much, really. But most people that do them do them fairly similar to the original. So there's really nothing to learn in that. But what Sarah did is really fantastic. Like it's a it's a, re- a reimagining is the word. It's um, and of course then we had the one lately where Tolan McKay did N17, mm. which is which got a lot of notice and people love it and it's fabulous. But I I think. Tolu and Sarah are both versions are equally good. Like I think they're just both fabulous. We just need to get. And it the... seems to help. Go on. It seems to help when uh, if it's going to be different that a woman sings it. I wonder if that's part of it. Quite possibly, yeah. We might just need to get the uh, the national concert orchestra in behind Sarah Leo. <laughs> and... Well, like, well, if Sarah. Got the National Concert Orchestra and a spot on New Year's Eve TV. I would imagine that that would have been very popular as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. Um, we started with the Water Boys, Leo, and uh, in a way, we're going to come back to the Water Boys uh, for this next piece. Um, you have been experimenting. I mean, as you say, you you used to write poems and you used to give Davy poems and see what he'd do with them. Um, and you're still writing poetry, spoken word pieces. Uh, and I heard one recently that you did uh, named, I guess, inspired by a Waterboys, the title inspired by a Waterboys song uh, called That Was The River. Is that is that right? Yeah. I actually emailed Mike Scott just to see if it was OK. He said, that's no problem. But they didn't use the title when they when they broadcast it on Sunday Miscellany. OK, so this was this was broadcast on Sunday Miscellany in the last little while. Yeah. But but they didn't use the title that I gave them. But right, okay. So, so I did call, I did call it that was the river and the, and the Waterboy song is this is the sea. So lovely, lovely. Yeah. Would you would you like to do it for us today? And try and read it out. It, lovely, Leo. Yeah. People were calling it a poem. I don't know. It's not really a poem. It's just a a bit of few words. It's this time last year when I just kind of realised God is we're in the same position now as it was when I was a child. Oh yeah. Can't go too far, like. Can't go too far, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right, so this, this is it, so. I'm standing on the bridge over the town's river, 
looking at the modest but crystal clear flow of a few inches of water over the stony bed, just as I would have done when I was 12 years old. It's no Mississippi or Volga, but it's our river on which the town was founded. It was deemed decent enough even for Rory O'Connor, the last High King of Ireland, to have his wonderful castle built on its banks about 850 years ago. When you're growing up, the grandeur of your surroundings isn't of major importance. Your home is your home, its scale a secondary consideration. You don't know any different. To us, Turnadaly Hill was the steepest hill in the world, and Mike McGuff was the world's tallest man. Our shallow river, called the Nanny, runs under this bridge and on through the town, is sidetracked in by the old mill where the wooden wheel has been restored only recently, past the tasteful and solemn little garden where two standing stones remember Anne-Marie McHugh, our town's victim of the Twin Towers attack. Then, on between the builder's yard and the shopping centre, out beneath the main road where it passes the Garda station on the right and out into the countryside, underneath the railway bridge, after which it joins the River Clare. The Clare flows to Loch Corrib and the lake empties into the River Corrib which flows with gusto and energy through Galway City and out into the Bay and the Atlantic Ocean. The Atlantic is connected to every other ocean on the planet. It may seem like a simple primary school geography lesson, but it's one of the ways by which we understood our connection to the rest of the world. I can remember standing here as a youth with vague visions and fantasies of a life of travel and adventure places unknown and even unimaginable, though images on cinema and television screens would have planted some seeds. I was always drawn to the lingering sunsets in the western sky at this time of year. Growing up the youngest child to parents who had lost their eldest eight-year-old son to a simple but tragic accident the year before I was born influenced my ambitions. I was understandably encouraged to be cautious and careful to be aware and even fearful of strangers and the unknown. No climbing trees for me, and cycling and swimming were never flavours of the month either. My mind struggled between a powerful desire to explore and learn and the apprehension of the unknown. In the intervening four decades since, I'm lucky to be able to say that three of those decades were filled with exhilarating travel and adventure to countless places around the globe. Not only that, but they happened in a dream-come-true fashion, coming as a result of doing the thing I loved the most from that age, playing music. And there was nothing to fear any more than if I'd stayed at home. Legendary playwright Tom Murphy grew up here as well, and when he left to swim in a bigger pond, he said that he had encountered every character he needed for a lifetime of writing plays in his hometown. I imagine most hometowns offer similar raw material. This sunny but cool spring day, standing once again over the River Nanny, many of my travels are as far in the past as they were in my 12-year-old's future. Today, my immediate travel range is just about the same as it was back then, when we had football training, soccer in the schoolyard, and the snooker hall, among other activities to keep us occupied. But the time is flying, we're healthy and enjoying the adjusted lifestyle in many ways, developing a new appreciation and knowledge of how essential and non-essential many things are. Turnadaly Hill 
still knocks the breath out of me. And Mike McGuff is as tall as he always was, though I haven't seen him in a few weeks. Unreal, man. That's excellent. So good. I really enjoyed that. Uh, I'd heard heard that before, lads. I'd love to get your reaction to it. Oh, man, that's, I don't know, maybe a slight bit emotional or something. That's so true to like... (laughs) It's so good, like that whole thing about the story of the the the, the little river going out to connect the, all the oceans. Amazing. That's brilliant, like so good. Well done. Thanks very much. Well, it's just, it was a kind of more comfortable lockdown at that stage last year, but I suppose that was about after a month of it or something I wrote that, whereas it's getting a bit tedious. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for <laughs> yeah. sure, for sure. There was still a kind of uh, a novelty in it at that stage wasn't there it was and it's it's well and truly worn off but that that really was lovely and do you know what it what it does really really nice you've written it about Toome and you've written it about your locality but it's very relatable like I can take a lot of things in that and apply them to to my own locality here in Grange and I mean, like Ben Bulban is up behind me and Street of Beach is is, is, is right down below me. I can see them both from my house. But when you were a kid, that uh, that was just what it was. But after going away to college for a few years and coming coming back, like you look around, you go, Jesus, wow, you know. So, I th- so that's lovely. It's, it's so relatable. Thanks very much. That little bit that you put in there about um, that my, my travels, some of them are as far in my past as they were See my twelve-year-old's future. You said it a lot nicer now than I've just put it. That is so clever. But at the same time, like it's such a nice thought to think. But it's kind of like it's a bit maybe sad too, you know. But at the same time, it's I just like how your brain did that <laughs> uh, and how you so eloquently put it onto paper to say mm. that like the dreams of a twelve-year-old, you've lived them. So there's a slight little bit of the fact yeah. that they're so that they're so far now in the past, but the joy of having lived them. I just think that's really, really, really well crafted, man. Well done. Thanks very much. Well, there's a lot, again, you see, there's a lot of luck involved. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think so. I don't know if luck will do this one. If the dream comes true. (laughs) I actually stayed uh, a week there uh, a few years ago up in Maharao. Oh yeah. And I was down in Ellens. I have a friend, Brendan Tierney. He he has a caravan up there. Brendan Tierney is a good friend of 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 ours. Yeah. Of course. So I was, uh, he gave me the caravan for a week there and, I suppose it must be five years ago now, but it was, whatever year it was, it was the sunniest, it was beautiful weather. Yeah. Jeez, you'd have to get up out of the caravan at about five o'clock in the morning and you'd be roasted. But it was great. <laughs> <laughs> I remember one morning I got up and I went out for a walk and I walked a couple of miles up one, one way down the coast and I came back and I walked another mile or so up along the higher bit mm. and I came back to the caravan and I went in for a snooze and I went out for a walk again. I came back and it was, I remember looking at my watch. It was 12 o'clock and I'd been up since five or six and I hadn't met a person. Yeah. I had not one met one other human being. That's Maharao. <laughs> <laughs> that was magic. And Strija, I think Strija is the nicest place I've ever swam. It's a beautiful slope of a beach, isn't it? It's a beautiful, comfortable beach. You're playing to your audience, Leo. Fair play to you. You're playing to your audience. Oh, man. no, true, true. <laughs> I want to get back. Yeah, I know. It'd be great to have you, maybe yourself and Porig up one day and, and jam out a few tunes in Luke's studio, maybe when we can mm. when we can all do that again. It'd be lovely. Well, you won't have to twist Porig's arm to go to Sligo anyway. Nor mine either, but definitely not his. <laughs> great. Very good. What, Very I good. Loved, what I loved about that piece, Leo, it's it just reminded me of 
Okay, it's it's so rooted in tomb, obviously. That's where you are and that's where you were when you're writing it. But it reminds me that ye lads, basically what you did was to bring tomb to the world. You know, you didn't you didn't change or you didn't uh uh you know try to sell something that you weren't. You were proud tomb, Galway, West of Ireland people. And you brought that to the world. And there's something really admirable about that, I feel, that you were just, right, this is us. Uh, this is what we're doing. This is this is our story. Here you go. Yeah, I. it was embarrassing at the start. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you're, when you're young and you're trying to play music on a stage, it, it is embarrassing. It, there's a, a, a lot of self-consciousness about it. But I think we got over the embarrassment because people liked it. And it, it's very easy do something if you're getting a positive reaction. And once the saw doctor started playing, as untogether as it was and as rackety as it was and it was out of tune and everything, it, people liked the racket and people were drawn to it. And as I said, that, that just encourages you. You won't stop too handy then. Like, yeah. <laughs> Last question, Leo. From what I've, I've read and what I've gathered, you've had plenty of projects outside the Saw Doctors over the years, between the bands you started off in, the project you did with Porig around the 98 Galway win, there's been the duo with Anto Tisseltwaite we spoke about, and the, there's the Cabin Collective. And so I, I get the feeling that if the Saw Doctors had never made it big, you'd probably be still gigging. Well, I'm still doing the same as I was doing as a teenager. I'm just kind of hanging around with my talented friends trying to help them get their songs heard. Ah, and <laughs> You'll have to stop this act. You'll have to stop this. <laughs> no, no, I mean, that's exactly what I'm doing now. I'm, I'm playing with Porrick. And I'm trying to get people to listen to Porrick songs because Porrick has a repertoire of the finest of songs ever written. And people have heard me for the last 30 years and they know what I do. And it, obviously they want to hear some of it again when they see me. But I'm always trying to, trying to encourage people to listen to these songs. You haven't heard them yet, but they are fabulous. And they really are. So that's, that's, the, that's the idea of what I'm at. But but you're right, it's, it's the exact same thing I'm doing 35 years later. Like. Where can people find uh, some of them tunes, uh, Leo, if they want to go and try and find some of them, them songs that you're uh, plugging Park, there? Park's albums are all on Spotify and, and whatever, whatever other platforms yeah, sure, they're on. Sure. But they're, yeah, they're, they're out there. He has Great. CDs as well, of course, but sure, where would you get them? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And I, I can attest that, that the songs are, the songs are fantastic. Yeah. That's Porg Stevens, if anybody wants to go and uh, Stevens with a V and give him a listen. Stevens with a V is right. Highly recommend it. Very good. Well, look, um, as I say, Leo, it'd be, it'd be lovely to do this in person one day. Oh, by Jesus. And we might go to Ellen's as well. <laughs> <laughs> we'll record, we we'll record in Ellen's maybe. <laughs> yeah. Listen, Leo, it's been brilliant having you on and, and thanks so much for being such crack and, and telling, telling of all your stories and, and your luck along the way, of course. <laughs> Let's not forget all the luck. Luck goes with perseverance. As one of the golfers said, was it Jack Nicklaus said, the more I practice, the luckier I get, kind of thing. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, indeed. People, we just wouldn't stop. I, like I was telling that story earlier that you get encouraged when when people like what you're doing. I'd say there was people saying, don't be encouraging them, lads. Don't be telling them you like them. You don't, you're only encouraging them. <laughs> well, thankfully they did encourage you because uh, you brought some great songs to the world and there's hopefully lots more to come. Leo Moran, thanks very much. Thanks, Leo. Thanks a million. And if you see Sarah Crummy, tell her thanks from me again as well, please. I will, of no course. No worries. Yeah. 
Um, no, I don't talk about it much these days. Like, Dad is the reason we all did it, like, because that he came up playing music. And I'm thinking, is it I who did something wrong? So from saying yes to looking after my grandmother, I got one of the greatest passions that I've ever had in my life. It was just, it was an incredible place to be, just so vibrant. So you are you know, the closest thing we have to a rock star. Lockdown, I'm bored with it now. I'm fucking bored with yeah. it. I wish it would come yeah. off. We here at In The Lamplight would like to unreservedly apologise. <laughs> That's beautiful, the two of you. Beautiful. <laughs> That's great now, lads. That's a heap of people that will never, ever come on our podcast now. Um, right, I, 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 I have a competition. This is between Sinead and Luke. But then she hit a fake high C. He's a man with a huge soul and a bigger heart. <laughs> Luke's happy about it by the sounds. Oh, wow, lads. How good was that? Is this, um, is this a trick question? You are very welcome to the podcast. It is. What about you and that handsome lamplighter? So that was Leo Moran. And if I'm honest, it's probably the interview I've been most nervous about up to now. Because as I said in the intro... Everybody we've interviewed up to now, I have known and we have known to a certain degree. Yeah. I've never met Leo before. And so it's 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 it was a bit of a challenge to try and, I guess, strike up a relationship live on the podcast and and all the while, you know, follow your list of questions or try not to follow your list of questions and go with what he's saying. And uh, but in fairness to him, he was so sound. Like he just oh, he just made that so easy. Yeah, totally. Really, really nice guy. After five minutes, you're you're just sitting there just talking to another Irish lad. Luke, I felt exactly the same. I, I actually thought at one point while we were interviewing him, I thought if if a Sunday rolled down and the world was open up a little bit more and I decided to go by myself to the local pub, sit down and watch the match and have a pint. If I found myself sitting beside Leo Moore and I'd be delighted. He's such yeah. a good, just a glad to chat to and just a bit of crack, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I couldn't get over his modesty. Every five minutes, it was about this bit of luck that happened and that bit of luck that happened. And, and look, <laughs> fair enough, you, everyone needs a bit of luck. And if Mike Scott hadn't come in that night to the gig, you know, who knows? But but still, it's, it's, it's a lot more than luck. They had great yeah. songs. They put on a great live show. There's so much more to it. <laughs> and I just had to pull him up on his, on his, on his modesty. He was like the, he was like the Kerry man saying, Ari, we'll do well to keep the ball kicked out to you, you know, or <laughs> it, was that, it was that type of vibe. <laughs> I mean, it wouldn't matter how many times Mike Scott walked into your gig. If you don't have some bit of magic going on, then Mike Scott isn't, isn't going to ask you to, to come and, and support him, you know? Yeah. The guys yeah. have their, they have their magic. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. I think the other thing was that like, even when we finished recording and, you know, our, our, our line of questioning was done and we finished our chat, Leo was just chatting away about Sligo and chatting like when it opens up, lads, we must go down and have a pint and we must go and have a chat. I just found him just so normal. And it's, I kind of like, okay, so from their music and from the odd thing I would have watched of them, I kind of expected him to be you know, fairly normal, a fairly normal dude. Just not like just to that extent where he almost became your mate instantaneously. It was, geez, lads, when this level five ends, we're coming down. We'll have a few pints at whatever yeah. pub is open and we'll head yeah. down to the beach. Yeah. And I just thought he was a legend. Yeah. yeah. And and look, wouldn't it be amazing to 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 get him live in the studio, you know, with Porig and 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 have a proper session, record another episode of the show, maybe in mm. in six months, 12 months time, whatever it might be. That would be really something to look forward to. For it's sure. really nice how uh, much um, appreciation and admiration 
he has for other people and other people's songwriting and you can really get that from, from talking to him and he, especially with, with Porik, um, he obviously has a massive appreciation for what Porik does and I can, underst- I can understand why because I really like Porik songs, I really like what Porik does so um, that's something that I would really look forward to in the future if uh, if things allow for it is being able to get Porik onto the podcast and um, have him play some of his songs and have Leo along with him and you know maybe at that stage uh, a bar might be open somewhere that we could organize a bit of a session and a sing song. Think we get Mike Scott, think we can get Mike Scott along. Just <laughs> two packs of bacon <laughs> fries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that'd be nice. So hopefully now in the future we can we can organize that. I'm yeah. gonna I'm gonna guess that that would be a mental day in a sense that like they'd land down it'd be music and you know technical aspects although them lads are too much crack to be too technical and then you'd be in the pub there'd definitely be a guitar there'd be tunes going it'd be we'd start a little mini festival with five of us <laughs> there we go there we go um it was also lovely to hear his reaction to Sarah Crummy's to win yeah. just once yeah he sure was, he was really appreciative of that and you know really high praise for for what Sarah did there I felt. Okay, so let's move on. Um, before we finish today on In the Lamplight, we have the latest episode of In the Rant Light. And we must thank uh, the two lads from the Kendi and Raybo podcast for coming on to have a rant today. So this is In the Rant Light with Kendi. And first of all, Raybo. Something that grinds my gears about music in Ireland. Um, well, I'll tell you what it is. It's when people buy LED lights from, we'll say, local suppliers such as Eddie Lee Lighting, and they get a set set of these lights, fancy lights, four of them maybe on a bar, and they're going to use them, we'll say, for the band. Uh, but they don't bother their arse reading the manual. They don't look into anything to, to, do, to do with them at all. They literally plug the shagging things in, put it up on the stand, right, and you're in a, your local bar, be it Tubber Curry or, or Turles Strand, and they have it up in the stand, and it just flashing. Mad colours, sound light. They just like they just go sound light. It doesn't matter. And you're just sitting there with a big epileptic head in you, watching a band playing. And you're wondering to yourself, what is going on? Why wouldn't it take a second to just try and figure out how to use the shagging lights? But of course they didn't. So that's it. That's what grinds my gears. I just wish people would take that minute to figure out how to get a nice colour fade going, which doesn't necessarily uh, hurt my feelings when I'm sitting there trying to drink a pint and watch a band. That's that's what grinds my gears about the music business in Ireland. Thanks. How are ye? What really grinds my gears about the music business is probably someone else's answer as well, but let's just go with this. What grinds my gears about the music business in Ireland is that people think that it's not actually a feckin' business. And when I say that, I mean comments like, are you still at the music you are? Are you going to get a real job? Would you ever think about going back to college? Comments like that really grind my gears because Kendi, contrary to popular belief, is actually a nice fella. And then I have to oblige these conversations with people and sometimes explain to them it actually is a business and sometimes go, I might go back to college, we'll see. That's what really grinds my gears about the music business. There we go. That was Ray McAndrew and Mark Kennedy, also known as Kendi and Raybo from the Kendi and Raybo podcast, uh, giving us a, an insight into the things that just tick them off a little bit in the music industry. I have to say, the, the, the lighting thing is not something I would have thought of 
no. for the segment in a million years. But it's something that I've noticed for years. You're watching these, you know, it's like a one bar of LED lights uh, and and another couple of them on the ground. And they're all just flicking flashing different colours everywhere. And it just looks <laughs> awful. You're trying to watch somebody play music and you, all you can watch is this like constant strobing lights. And another thing that people do with lights as well is that oh that's in my eyes oh that's shining in my eyes I just point it out there or they put the lights up and they shine them out on the audience like if it's not in your eyes then it's not it's not lighting you up Luke, yeah, we'll, yeah, give yeah. You, we'll give you we'll give you your own spot soon I think I think you've a lot to get off <laughs> your chest say, there <laughs> he's fairly triggered me now and Kendi wasn't bad either he wound <laughs> they wound up Kendi loved that light me up yeah and the Kendi thing we've spoken about that before we did only podcast. a couple of weeks ago, yeah. This this, this crack of uh, so you're still at the music, yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. Okay, well that marks the end of this particular episode of In the Lamplight. Before we go, folks, I would I, I would like to encourage you to sign up to our email list. You'll find it at lamplightpod.com forward slash subscribe. You will get all our news there first, including a first look at our featured performance each week. Next week's guest, we are very excited to be chatting to Orla Sweeney. Orla lives here in Strand Hill. She's a lady with Sligo roots. We had a chat recently on Not A Theme Night and we only had five minutes to complete it. And I remember thinking, wow, this lady has some story. We should try and hear more of it sometime. And so that's what we're going to do. She's She's been signed to Warner Brothers. She's worked with some of the biggest names in the music industry in Ireland and abroad. And so we're going to find out all about that next week on In The Lamplight. Looking forward to it. So all that remains to be said, lads, is, uh, I guess, thanks to Leo. Thanks to ye. Thanks and, to uh, you. Thanks to you. Thanks, Thanks to lads, 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 yeah. what happened there? What? We all did something at the end of the podcast in sequence yeah. that I don't think we've robbed from anyone else. We'll have to check. We'll have to go to the patents office. We'll have to go to the database. Yeah. We'll have to go to IMRO. <laughs> we'll have to go to the whole lot. I'm not getting nailed again. <laughs> We're not supposed to talk about what happened before, but suffice it <laughs> to say that I'm not going through that again. Right? Right. My, bank, my bank account can't take it again. If you want to know what Luke is talking about, go back to the Mark Kennedy episode of In the Lamplight. Mm. But for now, folks, see you next week. Good luck. See you next week and read the bloody manuals of your LED lights, will ye? Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.